Hello and welcome to What the Hegma podcast with your host Hegma the Bukhater. In this podcast, I'll be diving deep into questions on geopolitics, culture, and the everyday American dream. I'll be doing so from my unique perspective as a Syrian American immigrant. To help me examine these topics, I'll be inviting experts on the matter to weigh in. Two things brought about the launch of this podcast. First, my parents have recently become U.S. citizens. And second, I have just passed my seventh year living in the United States. I feel, thus far, that my relationship towards my second home is changing. I am no longer an observer, but an active participant in the American experience. An experience that constantly has me asking, what the heck? Joined with me uh, in the inaugural episode of What the Hekmat is Zed Jelani, a renowned journalist in my world as a Substack writer uh, for uh, Inquire, your own Substack. Previously with The Intercept, you've written a lot. You were uh, colleagues with uh, greats in, the, in, the, in, in their career, such as uh, Glenn Greenwald. You are part of the advisory board for FAIR. And you have previously worked also for the Center for American Progress. Zed, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I think that was actually a pretty good summary. Um, you know, I've spent most of the past, I'd say around a dozen years, uh, working in the nonprofit advocacy space or working as actually a journalist. So that includes the think tanks like Center for American Progress. I work for a political action committee called the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. I've worked for political campaigns, uh, but also I've worked as a journalist putting on a different hat, which is just writing and reporting uh, about the world, um, largely politics, uh, meaning DC and uh, state and local uh, elections and government legislation, but also some more social issue and cultural issue stuff as well, uh, which I'm doing a lot more of lately, I'd say over the past few years, so. And how do you feel about your recent switch into uh, your own writing, your independent journalism that you're doing on Substack? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting experience because I think that when I was working full-time as a journalist, uh, as a reporter, you know, I was all I was doing all writing, reporting, which I still do a fair bit of now on my Substack and also when I do freelance articles for various outlets. Um, but I've done more like opinion and analysis stuff, which I think is putting on a different hat because I have um, mostly just stuck to reporting over the past uh you know so such and such period of years uh but it's interesting to dive back into that because i feel like the Substack is almost like it's bringing back like old school blogging um because i used to read a lot of blogs when i was younger like in early 2000s and i was a regular reader i think of, of a lot of blogs and so it's interesting for me to kind of go back into kind of that space and and have that format where you, you know you're writing posts about topical things going back and forth having comments so on so on and so forth I have been thinking about that, actually. The prior generation's blogs has now become listicles on Twitter threads. Just notable figures who summarize an entire concept in four or five consecutive tweets. So, yeah, I appreciate your Substack for sure. I recommend mm -hmm. uh, people follow it. So uh, really quickly, last question about your background. What is your academic background and uh, how did you end up with journalism? Also, what is your age? <laughs> I have no clue. Yeah. Oh, oh, those are all good questions. So I 
Uh, I went to first. I went to the University of Georgia because I'm born and raised outside of Atlanta and Georgia. So I went to the University of Georgia for my undergraduate education. I majored in international affairs uh, with a minor in Arabic. And I did that in three years. It was 2006, 2009. And after I graduated, uh, basically, I looked at the skill set that I had, what I had been doing in college. And a lot of what I had been doing in college, in addition to my studies, was I uh, wrote for the campus newspaper, the Red and Black, the official newspaper. And I also started a student magazine that I uh, just worked with some friends on. So I, I, under, I came to understand that like one of my skill sets was writing, uh, doing reporting, and so on and so forth. So I took a job actually at the Center for American Progress, which was mentioned earlier, which is a think tank. But I worked at the unit called um, Think Progress, which, is, which was a blog, basically, uh, writing basically short form stories about uh, different topics. And so I wrote for the blog and also I helped manage and edit the newsletter, which we had like a daily newsletter around, to, I don't know, 70,000 people or something like that. And so it was really a kind of a quick pivot between being in the academic space and then actually getting involved in like the news cycle and actually writing about contemporary um, debates that were happening in DC. At that time, I think right when I, I started in 2009, so it was largely healthcare, I did a lot of healthcare stuff because um, the Affordable Care Act was being debated at that point. Um, but from then, I just kind of hit the ground running and, and, and had, I think, a series of opportunities or jobs where I did similar stuff, um, either working uh, in the kind of communications roles and advocacy organizations, or then later working for publications as a reporter. Excellent. Good to know. Um, all right. Well, the reason I have you on today is because I, I really like your form of journalism. I like the, uh, the writing that you do on Twitter, and I think you're someone who... Uh, and I get you, and I'm, I'm sure you get this all the time, but I think you're someone who speaks their mind, not towing the line between left and right. You're someone who describes themselves as center-left leaning. Um, I think just by the mere fact that you speak your mind and you don't uh, sugarcoat any of your opinions, people hesitate to place you in the, in the left. If you want to talk a little bit about that, see how in the last four years you'd say you're the perception of your political leaning has changed in the minds of people. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good question because um, I think when you place a, a political label on yourself or a grouping, it comes with a lot of assumptions. Um, so people, I think, think, okay, if you're on the right, you, you say, and you say, not only do you say certain things, you believe certain things, but you say them a certain way, you, maybe you read a certain group of people, you associate with a group of people, if you're on the left the same way in the other direction, right? Um, I think of it in a more classical sense, which is like, if you take a political compass test, uh, it asks you about all kinds of social and political topics, you do the test and the test places you somewhere on the you know, spectrum. So yeah, there's obviously not just one political compass test, there's many. But generally, when I take them, uh, what you mentioned was kind of territory that I end up. And I think that's actually stayed pretty consistent. I think what maybe has changed perceptions a little bit is because um, I think some people think that where you are on the political spectrum is defined by what you're against mm -hmm. and like how vigorous and uh, um, sort of insistent you are about that. So I think, you know, an example would be like in 2004, Howard Dean was the governor of Vermont. He ran for president on the Democratic side. He was seen as very, very liberal. And I think part of the reason he was seen as so liberal is just because he was very adamant against George Bush. He was very critical of them, so on and so forth. So he was seen as the most liberal candidate for many reasons. Uh, even though some other candidates that weren't seen maybe as quite as liberal, they might have actually believed things that were more progressive than he did. I mean, he actually had a reputation in Vermont as being a more moderate governor compared to a lot of the liberal people in Vermont. Um, 
But now I think that's everywhere. I think a lot of people think I'm a very good liberal because every day I can go on, go online, denounce any number of conservative people, thoughts, ideas, things. Or I'm a very good conservative because today I, re- you know, I really own those libs or something like you know, like they they have these counter-dependent yeah. identities, right? And I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that to be a healthy way to think. Um, but I think when some people see when I kind of turn down the opportunity to do that, that means oh, I'm not a, I'm not on, I'm not there, you know. Um, so maybe that explains some of the perception or some of the ways that people are thinking about that. It doesn't it does. necessarily, it doesn't necessarily impact me because, like, you know, I don't define myself as against someone else or something so yeah um so i hope to establish for my listeners and viewers that you're someone that i consider you'll you'll say the the facts as they are you've been on rising you've been on breaking points you've been on a lot of places both on left and right tim cast you've been uh you've worked with faisal shakir bernie's uh, uh campaign manager you, you've been everywhere mm-hmm. so i trust that you're yeah. going to give us your true unbiased opinion on the topic of this first episode which is the movie don't look up and the reason i think someone's opinion like yours is very important because there are two two sides of this coin people either are fawning over it and saying that this is the best movie ever made since casablanca or some others are saying that this is a, a disgusting movie that has no value and should not be seen by anyone unless you you know you pirate it on some sketchy tour website. So I have points here that I want to address with you, but first, can you give me broad, uh, broad general ideas after you watched the movie and what your opinion was on it? Yeah. So yeah, don't look up. So it's, it's streaming on Netflix. I imagine some theaters probably ran it just because um, you have to do that to be an awards consideration. So maybe some small Small theaters in a few cities that probably also run, but most people I think are watching it on Netflix. So I, I also watched it on Netflix. Uh, I think I was on a trip or something, like a plane trip. And so I, I downloaded it onto my phone from Netflix and I watched it on the airplane. And um, for me, you know, I did find it to be entertaining. Like I found it to actually like be worth watching. It was kind of fun. I think that a lot of the acting reminded me a lot of an improv uh, set. Uh, improv comedy is something I used to do a lot in DC. Um, before the pandemic, uh, when we could gather more. And the thing about improv is you focus a lot on making like characters and like making strong emotional choices with them. And I felt like the the sequence of events in the film were kind of based on that, right? And that you you they introduced characters who I think um, were almost a little overacted and that they were big zany kind of caricatures of various parts of society. And they just kind of had them play with each other and, and advance the plot along more than thinking about maybe a larger sweep or stretch of a story. Um, so in that way, I think it was, it, was, it was kind of a fun movie to watch and conceptualizing it that way. Um, I think some people were critical of some of the roles, like is Leonardo DiCaprio really, could he really be a nerd? You know, he's considered to be a very attractive, charismatic no, actor, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, some people I think were critical of that, but I, you know, I found him to be entertaining in the role. And I do think that, Almost, almost at times also, it's also very sincere. And, and at times it's even touching, I think, some of the, the scenes in the film in terms of the, the uh, emphasis on sort of the smaller subplots, like the subplot about Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, character's uh, relationship with his family, for instance. I think I, I was, at times it was touching. Um, but that being said, I think that some of the political um, points that the film was trying to make didn't quite land because I think that 
the satire that they were the satire that they were that they had presented and put together was just too far from reality in some points. Like, of course, satire is not never supposed to completely match reality, right? It's supposed to be somewhat of an exaggeration. Uh, generally, has a more absurd spin or comical spin. Um, you know, famous satires include films like Dr. Strangelove, which of course was satirizing uh, the nuclear arrangement between the United States and Soviet Union. Uh, other recent satirical films that are really good. I don't know if your listeners or viewers have seen any of Armando Iannucci's stuff, which is like, he makes Beep, which is, I think is a very entertaining show. Uh, Julia Lewis Drive. Yeah. 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 Veep. Um, and he also makes a series of British programs, which satirize British politics. But there, I think there's some really good satires out there. But with this film, my perception was that while it was a fun and entertaining movie, it at times was just too absurd to be like an accurate satire, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't making the the kind of the most most realistic or correct critiques of a lot of the institutions that it was satirizing. Yeah. And I think the the one that I that I felt the, the, the part of it that I felt most strongly about was the way they presented the news media, because basically the first half of the movie, or maybe first third of the movie, um, you see Leonardo DiCaprio's character, and he's a scientist. Uh, I think he must be an astronomer or something similar to that, because he helps um, as a professor at a university. He is um, tasked with, it must be some kind of uh, survey system. Yeah, he's Sorry, identifying, what? yeah, a physicist identifying right. objects extraterrestrially that could potentially. Yeah, they have a, uh, they have a telescope basically mm. at this university. And so he and his assistant, who I think is a PhD student, who is played by Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. Basically what happens is they discover a comet heading towards, you know, towards the, uh, the earth. And basically yeah, in six alert, months by the way <laughs> spoiler yeah i guess it's yeah. a spoiler but it's like the first five minutes in the movie so you know we didn't spoil yeah. it too bad um yeah so they discover comments coming and so they, they run around trying to get everyone to do something about this and what they find is that a lot of people are just disinterested about it right mm. and the the one institution where i really felt like they you know the critique which is off the mark was the news media because i can't imagine you know having worked in news media having written or appeared on all kinds of mainstream media and been involved in publications of left and right, it's just very hard for me to imagine that the news media would be disinterested in like a large scale, large scale catastrophe of any sort. Right. Uh, yeah, there's I the, old, the actual like, quote was we like it. We like to keep it light here on, uh, yeah, on I the mean, program of the rip. But <laughs> they, uh, yeah. So I don't know right. how, in what scenario that could be even slightly believable. No, I, well, the thing is, I think the two, I think that there were two um, news organizations in particular, they based the satire off of, you mm. could kind of tell by like the format of the show and like the font yeah. they were using for the publication. But I think they were satirizing the New York Times and Morning Joe. And mm -hmm. Morning Joe's a uh, morning MSNBC morning program. And the New York Times, of course, is like a paper record based in New York City, but have, has a global presence. And I would imagine that both of those programs, if both of those publications, and organizations, if there was a comet heading towards the earth, I think it would it would be seen as a goldmine for their productions, right? They would be covering every single angle of that. They'd be pressing politicians about that. They'd be interviewing scientists every day about it. There'd probably be a hologram on the screen of the comet as it approaches the earth, giving us the exact date and time it's going to hit. Um, that to me is the most realistic way that I could see the news media responding to this. And 
you know, it's it, it may it, it would almost be have been more entertaining if they had said Riza in that sense, right? To have like, you know, Don Lemon with his comet hologram, maybe interviewing some people who have built a comet shelter because they think it'll protect them from the comet. Like, you know, there's the, the news media tends to have a bias towards negativity and sensationalism, right? It doesn't tend to have a negativity towards, you know, everything is going to be okay. Everything is awesome. We like to keep it light, as you said, right? Yeah. Um, so they got the bias backwards. And I think that kind of just set the entire film kind of on the wrong direction in the critique, because even some of their political critiques, like, you know, they had some critiques that had some truth to it. Like, um, they suggested that, you know, large donors are very persuasive over over president and politicians, mm-hmm. and that is certainly some truth to that. They suggested that, um, you know, not everyone who's in, in the White House is necessarily the brightest mind in the world, not the most competent people. I think all that's true. But it was all kind of predicated on the news media kind of letting the comment story go, and then the world just not being that concerned about it. And I don't think, I just don't think that's how it would play out. And I think we have a kind of a test scenario on that, which was the COVID-19 pandemic, which is with the COVID-19 pandemic, there certainly were divergent responses to it among society, including on political lines. But it wasn't a matter of anyone, no one significant like denied that there was a COVID-19 pandemic happening. No one significant um, suggested that we should just shrug and like forget about it. I mean, only that was a very marginal sentiment at most, right? Yeah, um, I, I can totally believe that there would be like a polarized response to a comet heading towards the Earth. Uh, maybe the parties would blame each other for not doing enough or not doing the right thing about it. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we would just ignore it and shrug our shoulders and, you know, go watch some celebrity videos or something. Um, I imagine it would be one of the more more terrifying and um, I think terrifying and just sort of chaotic environments everywhere yeah. in the United yeah. States and the rest of the world. Um, and I just don't think, I, I don't think their central critique was right. Uh, and yeah. the satire, even though I think the movie was pretty entertaining and it did, they did make a few good points about the political system and, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's disappointing to me also, just because like, I don't know how big of a role he played in it, but David Sirota, um, who was a political journalist who also worked for Bernie Sanders, both yeah. when he was a congressman back in the day and also most recently on a presidential campaign. And I've worked with David in the past. I've co-written some things with him. I think he's a really smart guy. Uh, he knows the media very well, and yeah, that I don't know. Maybe it was more of an maybe yeah. it was more of an Adam McKay thing because McKay has not worked in political media, so yeah. maybe he doesn't know as much about it. He was the director of the film; he probably did more of the writing than Sirota did. Um, but yeah, I would, you know, I I I am sympathetic to a, some of Sirota's critiques of the media that he makes uh, at times, but those just didn't really translate into this film, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm I'm very sympathetic as well, and I really appreciate Crystal Ball's opinions on the matter. And I I that's the reason I watched it the day it released because I was watching Breaking Points and I saw their segment with David Sirota, and I my expectations were much higher than what I actually saw on TV. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it wasn't uh, it it wasn't coming from a perspective that you think is versed, well-versed with the media, well-versed with how things actually work in Washington, D.C. Which brings me to the other uh, follow-up question here. There are a a bunch of stereotypes made in the movie about the two political parties. One of them was certainly less less revealing of the current times. When I saw it, I, I just remembered good old movies made in 2005, 2008, mimicking uh, the, the baboonery, if you may, of like the bushes or mimicking mm-hmm. the, 
the hand-holding, strong-holding ways of uh, Ronald Reagan. So when I saw Meryl Streep's character, I kind of was disappointed. I expected something more nuanced about a conservative mm -hmm. president, uh, something that would speak to today's populist side, potentially of cons conservatism. I didn't expect mm -hmm. to see this, uh, you know, cigarette in hand type president that just was bossing people around, not paying attention to anything that was going around them. So, uh, yeah, what were your thoughts about uh, the Meryl Streep character and how it purely shows one side of the aisle depicted within her? Yeah, I mean, my perception was that she was a conservative president, even though they didn't explicitly. I don't think throughout the movie they explicitly used the labels like Republican or Democrat. No, but um, she's wearing maybe, red in most of her scenes. Right. <laughs> right. Not only is she wearing red, but like her supporters at rallies and stuff when they have their signs. Yeah. The signs are like obviously like Trump font yeah. or like Republican and they had the Party right hats on and everything. Right, like it, it there and also like um, her chief of staff is her son, mm -hmm. which um, is supposed to be an allusion to Jerry Kushner. I think he's Trump's son-in-law. Was yeah, very, he wasn't chief of staff, well. but he was fairly senior, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it was obviously an allusion to conservative president. But I think some people, some people I know who watched the movie and were commenting about it. I think they saw a bit of Hillary Clinton in her as well, but I didn't really see that as much. Um, maybe they just, just because she's a woman, maybe they thought she was like Hillary Clinton because <laughs> everything I've heard about Hillary Clinton is that Hillary Clinton is very um, like uh, visceral in person or like she's very yeah. detail oriented and like she's, you know, she's like fairly smart. Like yeah, it, she's not going to be it, doing the same it stuff. It didn't match her. It didn't match her personality at all. So not I didn't all. think it was yeah. Clinton. Um, but yeah, I do think it was, it was largely a critique of conservative politicians. And you're right in the sense that this particular critique has really been made, I think it was most mainstream under George W. Bush, mm -hmm. um, because George W. Bush, the critique towards him was always that he was someone of a simpleton. Mm -hmm. I actually had a professor who knew him during college at yeah. Yale. And my professor, even my professor told me, yeah, when he was at, like, at, the, at the lunch table, um during lunch he couldn't keep up with our conversations like you know even even like college george w bush people had a he had a he reputation a for slow. not being very smart <laughs> yeah like that was and it to me that felt like the same thing was going with with meryl streep's president because um the the central critique of her basically was that she just wasn't very bright wasn't taking it very seriously didn't know what was going on um and you know it's interesting when i think back to, to sirota i remember sirota I think he's written about this actually somewhere. And then like one of his favorite political satires is Idiocracy. And Idiocracy is a movie that basically suggests that like America's central problem will be that just like people are really dumb. You know, like we don't, we can't, we can't do anything. We're kind of incompetent. Um, and I'm trying to think about even seeing the entire movie Idiocracy. I feel like I've seen parts of it. Um, but I think that a lot of that made it into this movie, like a lot of David's appreciation for idiocracy made it into this film because the central problem with all the characters is just that they are like really, really, really dumb. Like, you know, it isn't even dumb that they're like- self-indulged in some way or another. There, there yeah. is, yeah, there is a little bit of like greed in it, but even the greed is not the biggest thing. Cause like, you know, like- it's not convincing. You have, to be really, you have to be very dumb to- 
take the risk that they were taking. And you have to be very yeah. dumb to be dismissive of something like this, right? Yeah. You can be the most selfish person on earth, but if you're intelligent, you would have known what to do in this situation or you would have behaved uh, with more wisdom in this situation, right? And, so, you know, I don't, I think in terms of the side of the movie, that's the political critique. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also a little bit harder of a sell, right? To suggest yeah. that, you know, I think Ross Doubt had actually, he tweeted this, he's a New York Times columnist. He tweeted that like, at the end of the day, if the, you know, like if the conservative president just made a different decision, the whole movie would have like been over and like everything would have been solved instantly. Right. Like it was, yeah, it wasn't as much as McKay and Sirota maybe thought they were making a larger social critique. Um, like the option kind of was down, within our hands. Right. There was a solution. Right. It was all there. It's just right. one the, the, dumb institution that just decided not to do anything about it. Right. Like it, it, it really just kind of falls to like this actually could have been handled very easily. Right. Um, which also, you know, we should note that this film is intended to be a critique of like the human approach to global warming or climate change. Climate right. Change, yeah. They're mm-hmm. suggesting that like we are ignoring this threat, this ominous threat and nobody cares enough about it. And, you know, there's, there's scenes where, you know, Leo's character is like yelling at the screen, trying to get people to take it seriously. And um, I think the big difference between this and that is that if a comet's heading towards the Earth, you know, there's basically one response, which is using some type of weapons to deflect it or destroy it. And yep. I think every country in the world would just be putting their resources to doing that, and they would do it. Um, tackling global warming, I, you know, I'm not a, a climate science expert. Out of all the topics I've written about, reported about, I've probably done the least on the environment. I know a little bit, but not that much. So I'm not an expert by any means. But I think that the central problem with it is that it's actually a very difficult challenge to orient our economies in entirely different ways, to orient the way we live in an entirely different way. And I think Sorota would probably be right if he argued that like political corruption was making it more difficult to tackle that any number of things that are making it more difficult to tackle it, but still a hard, like much, much harder problem than the comet. And going back to Ross Dowhead's point, if it was just a matter of a single leader just doing something more intelligently, you know, you can you can you can take down a social problem pretty pretty easily. And this one is just it requires the cooperation of you know hundred plus countries, industry, because huge change to consumer lifestyle at times, governments, you know, it's, it's actually very difficult. And it's also kind of makes the comet and global warming analogies that are kind of difficult for me to kind of put together. Not that I necessarily have a better idea for how you would um, satirize the global warming problem because it's a difficult problem to tackle, but um, it, the comet just, it, you know, it was, it was hard for me to connect the two things when they're on different, entirely different scales in terms of how easy it is or how obvious the solution is to the problem. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It seems like it it missed the mark generationally, the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And then when it tried to be serious, it was already in the Talladega Nights territory from the, right. the directing and the movie perspective. So it wasn't able to get to the seriousness that it espoused, even with the dramatic final scenes where everyone's holding hands and praying together so that brings me to another point that i think they missed the mark is that 
they introduced this billionaire who's the head of uh, the CEO of this company called Bash. And uh, I think they try and portray someone of a Jeff Musk. So Bezos, Elon type of situation combined in this uh, technologically savvy uh, CEO who's trying to, to trying a technological approach towards solving the world's problems, aka climate change. Mm. Who is this big tech billionaire in real life in bed mm. with, uh, as, as we see it truthfully in our day-to-day political life? As we, as we consider, especially today, who are, who are the billionaires more likely to be in, um, in coots with? You know, what was interesting about that character is that whereas you could see um, the president being an analogy to Bush or Trump very clearly, mm-hmm. um, with that character, it felt more like they, they smashed up a bunch of different like archetypes. So mm-hmm. the character, the tech CEO in the movie dresses like Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And also, like, he maybe has some issues with, like, paternity or, like, a girl you see in the film, kind of like Steve Jobs had. So there's that. He kind of talks, like, maybe, like, a riff off of Elon Musk. Um, yeah. He is involved with phone technology, which is interesting because, like, the tech CEOs we think of today um, as being the most influential are, like, the Facebooks and Googles. Um, but this guy seems like his, his company seems to control like whole, like a lot of different things. Like they have space, they basically have space technology where they can launch things into the space. And, um, so he seemed like he was an amalgamation of a bunch of CEOs. And then when the weird part of it to me, like what you were just describing was that it seemed like he was allied to the conservative political movement, which is the opposite of what's happening today. Yeah. Seventh rank or lobbyist. And he could at any point request and have a meeting with Meryl Streep's character. So that, when I saw that, that scene where he just decided that he's going to meet with Meryl Meryl Streep on the spot, I realized that that couldn't happen anymore with the conservative, with the conservatives or the Republican party. The most it could potentially happen is, you know, the CEO of uh, Exxon or something. Um, Right. But but nowhere else in technology in Silicon Valley, they don't even hold any sway with these folks anymore. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of what they did is not only did they make the the tech titan an amalgamation of all the tech people, uh, even people with very different personalities and attributes, mm-hmm. but they also kind of combined them with the role that like fossil fuel companies play in the yeah. Republican Party and made them into one thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cause yeah, the fossil, fossil fuel industry is very tied to the Republican party structurally. And it also would probably, it would bleed into the analogy they're trying to make with climate change or the parties are not addressing climate change because fossil fuel companies mm-hmm. make money off of it, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, they, they combine all those things together, but it might've been better if let's say they did have like a fossil fuel CEO be the one who wanted to like, you know, who wanted to actually profit off the comment, so on and so forth. It would have been more on the nose, but maybe it would have made a little more sense. Um, right now, the tech CEOs, if we compare the common emergency to the COVID emergency, I think the tech CEOs were very in step with the, the government and the public health people, right? They were trying to utilize their like content moderation to, um, prohibit discussion about COVID in certain ways. Uh, yeah. At first, like it was even things like the lab leak theory were like somewhat down. Uh, I don't know if, if they if Facebook blocked it all together, but they like did some some kind of. Um, 
they blocked content it. moderation on it. That was yeah, they blocked oh, the New York Post article. They they did a lot of things in the past COVID uh, era since the mm-hmm. COVID nation attacked. <laughs> um, right. They did a lot of stuff that could could arguably be put on the Democratic side that they were in one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the film kind of portrays the tech firm, the massive tech firm as being on the conservative side of the question, whereas the yeah. tech firms right now seem to be more allied to the Democrats. Um, and the tech firms also were kind of serving as a stand-in for the fossil fuel companies in this analogy, but just because anyone who knows anything about the tech industry right now just have, would have a hard time swallowing that, right? Like, yeah, I imagine the tech companies would all side with the scientific establishment and the government to do whatever they could about the comet, right? Like, I feel like they would be educating people about the comet. They would be maybe censoring or downplaying commentary from people who didn't think the comet was a big deal or something like that. Yeah. Um, But they gave them kind of the reverse role, right? Um, Yeah. Also the film... Well, I don't. I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it. No, you can spoil. I already said the disclaimer. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Disclaimer. Okay. So I didn't mention this in my review, but like at one point in the movie, you have a rally of people of the supporters of the president, and they have signs saying they want to mine the comet. Right. It's like meaning that they want to take extract the the minerals or whatever that are on the comet, which I don't. I don't know enough about the science of this, but I think that might be technically impossible because I think comets are mostly ice anyway. But anyway, let's put that aside. But then the comet is, they can start to see it above them and they look up and then they start yelling at the uh, president's son that they lied to them about the comet, I guess not existing. But that didn't even make any sense because the scene itself was, it was full of the president's supporters who wanted to support mining the comet. So they obviously believe in the comet. But then the, the film is also like suggesting they didn't believe in the comet while also believing it at the same time, because that's like where the title comes from. The title Don't Look Up comes from the conservative side of the debate saying, just don't look up and you don't worry about the comet. It's not it's not even there. Um, but the it conservatives no at the exact same time, like they want to like they want to extract all these minerals and like all this wealth yeah. from the comet. So like th- it's almost like Sirota and McKay and the film or whoever wrote the film couldn't decide which critique they wanted to make, right? Did they want to make the critique that people just didn't believe in the comment or that they just thought they could profit off the comment, right? Because I think they should have picked one or the other. Yeah, I think they decided halfway through because this this movie was filmed during COVID. They decided halfway through, oh, you know what? Let's shove COVID in there as well and see if it works. Hmm. And I I think think a lot of people watching it did see it as a... Because I think you're right. Like They were writing it before... I imagine they started like sketching this out or writing it before COVID started. Yeah, they did. They had, they they really wanted to stick to like the global warming stuff. But like, as soon as this movie came out, a lot of people who were watching it were comparing it to COVID-19 like immediately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had, it had to bear on the, on like the, the producers of the film, right? In yeah. terms of the polarization they saw around COVID-19 and trying to apply it to this issue as well. So, um, because it is like the, it is probably the closest emergency um, to the comet in that it was like a large scale event that required a lot of people to change their lifestyles and like an emergency response, um, which isn't quite the same thing with global warming just because it's a very like slow burn type issue. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think, yeah, I, I, I'd be curious to see if anyone's directly asked McKay or Sirota if they feel like how they incorporated that COVID. Uh, situation into the film as well but you should do that on twitter 
Yeah, yeah. I guess they they're Just both very active on Twitter. Yeah, no, Sroda and Mickey are both very yeah, active. Yeah, they, they've for both sure. been actively defending the movie nonstop, which which I admire. Yeah. Um, moving on sure. to a quick uh, yeah. couple of points. So there's a famous or infamous rather quote uh, from AOC saying the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. How does that not force similarities and uh, a mirroring almost of uh, Jennifer Lawrence outbreak in uh, in the middle of the, the first or second uh, part of half of the movie where she's uh, trying to trying to get attention from the media folks on the TV show, The, the Rip, but no one is taking her seriously. They're focusing on some celebrities' uh, breakup. So how does that not force comparisons and give you an idea that, yeah, I mean, you can't really take someone seriously when they're telling you back in 20, 2018 that the world is going to end in 2030 and some other people are going to decide to just ignore you all, all around because they're not seeing... You're not seeing facts. You're not seeing anything that supports your views, right? Especially with the alarmism that is is bestowed within your views. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think part of this is like the characters in the movie seem to be addressing this issue the same way that like someone might address a political issue on Twitter, which like you know, like I think both McKay and Sarota do spend a lot of time on Twitter arguing about politics which is sometimes that the way that you feel like you're winning is by being expressing things in the most emotional terms, mm-hmm. um, which Twitter rewards that. So you are, you do kind of win Twitter by doing that. Like you get more retweets and likes and shares on Facebook and all these social media websites reward that. But people who work in professional political advocacy generally don't do that um, because it tends to look weird to people who are not like in those arenas or environments. So like Jennifer Lawrence and, um, Leonardo DiCaprio's characters at different points have outbursts where they are screaming at a television host basically on a live cable show program um, about the danger or threat of the comet. And everyone around them looks like you're just losing it, right? Um, Because that is kind of the response you generally have when someone just has an outburst about something that you don't entirely understand or know about. Um, But, you know, they're kind of portrayed as being like, um, somewhat noble because they did that or maybe just like frustrated but like the, the reality is anyone who works on any kind of political issue and advocacy and I you know I've done advocacy work in the past they're frustrated right that other people are not on the same page with them that's why they're doing the advocacy work in the first place because not everybody agrees with them and they don't have the votes to pass whatever they want to do or so on and so on and so forth um, the like devolving into shouting thing is like it's just a sign that you are doing it wrong or like you're you know, you don't have the maturity to kind of see it yeah. through. Um, and yet the movie kind of makes everyone else seem like in the wrong because they're not devolving into shouting, but like doesn't really help your cause in, in, in normal times. Um, of course, the way that everyone around them was responding to this comment was so absurd that maybe someone would lose their temper and, and shout that way. But um, it's not a very good analogy for how people should do like political advocacy. Um, towards the latter half of the movie when they're like doing awareness stuff and holding concerts and yeah. rallies and stuff like that's probably closer to normal um, but at that point all the other major actors in the film and government and the media have gotten so absurd that maybe that didn't make any difference um, although in real life those are some of the tactics that are available to you uh, in terms of addressing these issues so uh, I don't know some people who watch the movie I was reading a lot of other reviews and responses to the movie some people who watched the movie thought that they were also making fun of 
Leo and uh, Lawrence's characters for doing like the concert and the rallies and stuff. But, you know, I thought about it and I, I thought, um, what other choice did they have at that point? Yeah. Right? Like they, yeah. And I, the only I thing so. they I could think, do. Yeah. No, I think that was do. a, yeah, no, that was a, not, no, I don't think that part was a parody. I think that was an actual reflection on how things do mm-hmm. tend to happen and how you sway folks onto your side. I just don't know um, how that reflects on their outbursts. I don't think positively. Right. Um, okay, last quick point here. So the the performance of this movie is being touted everywhere as the most grossing movie in uh, the history of Netflix, which is impressive. Uh, but people are, I think, malaligning the, the reasoning behind the success of this movie uh, with its message and with the, the broader cause of climate change. I think there has to be a voice of reason telling people to slow down and reconsider the potential reasons for the success of this movie. I mean, mm-hmm. after all, you have Leonardo DiCaprio, Mel- Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, Jonah Hill, um, <laughs> Ariana Grande performing, and uh, many, many other folks like Adam, Mc- Adam McKay himself directing it and writing the script. So, mm-hmm. and Kate Blanchett, not to mention Terry, T- Tyler Perry as well. So why aren't people realizing that uh, when folks hear about these names all together in the same movie, they don't miss out. They're not going to choose not to watch this movie, even if they know the political uh, messages behind it. So, yeah, I mean, it, the, the movie definitely had a lot of star power. It also, I think, came out around the right time, right? Which is that it came out um, in the holidays. It was a streaming movie. Mm-hmm. Um, had the star power and also I think some of the non-political themes of the movie like the family oranges stuff like it's almost in some ways even though it's like about a crazy chaotic thing um, it's just kind of an enjoyable and comfortable movie to watch in some ways and mm-hmm. also even if you don't think that a lot of the cr- criticisms of the media or, or of the political class make a whole lot of sense they're still criticizing media and political class which are like unpopular institutions right like I think uh, I, I read some like conservative people who saw the movie who just thought who just liked seeing like the media, you know, get made fun of and stuff, right? Even though the movie was largely making fun of their like political side or their their side of the aisle, right? Um, so I think just picking those targets in particular, it's just it's ripe for, you know, I think it's the same reason people enjoy watching other satire, like the Armando Annucci stuff with Veep or Thick of It. Um or any of the other any of the other big satirical things because I think that the territory itself is very attractive, yeah. and yeah, I think the star power is attractive. And also, I think a lot of people, even if they're with me and they didn't think that all the punches really landed, uh, it's still an entertaining movie. Like it's still like the acting is enjoy the acting is enjoyable to watch. It's I not think, Oscar worthy or anything, but it was certainly enjoyable. Right. I mean, it's overacted in the same way, like I said, like an improv or or, co- yeah. or a comedy skit would be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not going to be something you're going to be remembering for years and years, but it's like, oh, you might you might laugh at parts of it or you might remember parts of it um, just for that reason. So um, I know that there was, um, by the way, people do want to see like, a, I think a little bit better satire of these same institutions. There's a really good movie called Thank You for Smoking. Uh, it came out, I, yeah. it was, I've heard Maybe 2006 it. or 2007. Anyway, it's based off of Christopher Buckley's book. And Christopher Buckley is a really fun political satirist. He's the son of uh, William Buckley, I think, who's a conservative. Um, but what, Christopher is not like hardline conservative or anything. He's mostly just like, 
he likes to write political comedy. And uh, anyway, the movie is about like a tobacco lobbyist in DC and sort of how he like manipulates uh, politics and media to kind of drive the, the pro-tobacco agenda. Um, it's a little bit over the top too, but it, to me, it, it's a little bit more grounded in reality. Um, and a lot of the ways that they describe them doing everything are pretty realistic to Washington. And you can kind of tell that somebody who's been enmeshed in that world, which is like Buckley family has, uh, was someone who wrote it. So I would definitely recommend if people enjoyed, uh, don't look up just for the reasons of seeing a satire of media and politics. Um, watch Thank You for Smoking. It's, it's yeah. really, really good. It has um, Aaron Eckhart and a few other people. I don't recall all their names, but Aaron Eckhart's the lead. He's a tobacco lobbyist. Mm-hmm. Cool. One last point here. I think if any messages should be taken from this uh, from this movie is, as you said earlier, as you, as you alluded to earlier, just get the sons and children of uh, politicians out of politics. Just let's let's make sure we end nepotism with this movie. Uh, and and with that thread, yeah, just just get Chelsea Clinton out of it. Get Hunter Biden out of politics. Ivanka and Jared Kushner. I think that's the right. one message that I, I don't want to see Jonah Hill's character represented yeah. in any political sense. I think that's something that sure. is very easily agreed upon by both bipartisan side. Yeah, right. and it's an intergenerational, it's an inner, um, well, not only is it intergenerational, but it's, it's, it, it ha- it's something that happens in other countries too, right? Like mm-hmm. the Buttos and the Gandhis and like, you know, there's, there's several families across the world where you have these um, kind of, high-level political party positions handed down through lineage. And I think, honestly, I imagine that was one of the frustrations that led to Trump being elected was that mm-hmm. Jeb Bush was basically in a position to be anointed, right? And yeah, that was the sure. third Bush, the mm-hmm. third Bush that would have been elected president. And he, I think he had over $100 million stacked up in super PACs and donors and blah, blah. And I think that there was a lot of frustration about that from some on the Republican side and Trump tapped into it very effectively. Um, so I think that's a real thing. It, it's funny that there's definitely some popular appeal to having those political dynasties or families. That's why these people stick around. Um, but there's also a, like an equivalent frustration with it, right? That I think yeah. um, leads to some of these dynasties losing and, and being toppled and, and with both the Bushes and the Clintons in 2016, for instance. So, yeah, I mean, I know about dynasties. I come from the Middle East. <laughs> mm. um, Zed, I really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciate you going slightly over time here for the inaugural episode of What the Heck Mutt. This was What the Heck Mutt, What the Heck uh, is Wrong with Don't Look Up. I really appreciate our conversation. And uh, I, do you want to quickly give a pitch to uh, your Twitter handle and your Substack? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have a Twitter where I put a lot of my stuff out because I write for different places. Uh, it's just my first name, last name, so Z-A-I-D-J-I-L-A-N-I. And also, uh, I write a Substack um, newsletter with my friend, Sean Misrobian. It's at inquiremore.com. So you should check that out as well. Excellent. I highly recommend following Zed. Uh, he's a unique writer in today's age. Thank you, Zed. Thank you.